Hello, this is Richard Wilson, founder of the Family Office Club and Family Office Podcast. And I'm here today with SL from Caprock Real Estate. And I love talking about niche-focused businesses, niche-focused investments, and also things that are kind of going against a, a trend or a common belief and kind of bucking that and going the opposite direction. And that's what we're going to be talking about today, which is retail, commercial real estate investing, and a special type of retail uh, opportunities within that niche. So uh, welcome to the podcast here, SL. Thank you, Richard. It's good to join you. And before we jump into it, can you share a little bit on your background and, and history and what led you on this path to now focusing <laughs> on this niche? Sure. Um, it's, a, it's a rather long path, so I'll, but I'll summarize it. Um, I have an accounting degree, so I am a CPA. I did work as an auditor for a little under three years but had a re real estate client that I was an auditor on and got a headhunting call for a new um, private equity firm that was specializing in real estate and jumped at it because I knew long-term I wanted to be in real estate and I didn't want to be an accountant. Um, accountants look at the past and real estate looks at the future. So that was my, my appeal to it. So I, I worked for an office developer. I started my first company when I was 29 doing uh, syndications of, of neighborhood properties in the, in, in the Lincoln Park neighborhood of Chicago, which is where I live. And, uh, and then I worked for a family office uh, managing their uh, uh, industrial portfolio. They, we had a million and a half square feet uh, office warehouse uh, during, the, during the 90s. And I successfully turned around the portfolio and left when it was 98% leased. Uh, in the 2000s, I worked, uh, had a partner that we worked on um, disposing of excess real estate for institutions. So nonprofits like an Art Institute of Chicago or the Boy Scouts or, or different uh, colleges like Loyola and DePaul. Uh, and then it sold out in 06, good timing as it turns out. And uh, mm -hmm. once the uh, crash hit, I decided I wanted to work on uh, distressed real estate and started a firm with my partner at the end of 08 and uh, ended up working on distressed um, CMBS loans. I collateralized mortgage-backed securities um, mm -hmm. for uh, what they call special servicers that manage the, the distressed uh, assets and worked. Uh, I would be get a court-appointed receiver and you know, work it out, uh, raise the value, and then sell it. And we did that through the recovery, and then more recently focused on third-party uh, investors that moved, that buy property in the uh, Chicago area or the Midwest, um, but are generally from the coast, um, and they're attracted to, to the Midwest because our cap rates are um, so much higher. Uh, there's a nice spread that they can make with their, you know, moving their money here versus what they can get in, say, California or, or uh, you know, in New York, New Jersey, places like right. that. So, um, and then the last uh, couple of years, I've uh, focused on acquisitions and investments and developed uh, an approach, and uh, and that's where I'm at. Great. And so let's talk about that approach. A lot of it plays off of uh, kind of a retail you know, meltdown, retail apocalypse. People talk about, you know, how Amazon's putting everyone out of business that has a retail storefront, but 
that's not entirely true and that's the niche you play in, right? Exactly. So yeah, let's just talk about the retail apocalypse a little bit. Um, it's kind of an overused term. Uh, the press loved it for quite a while. And, and at the time, you know, three, four years ago, um, it was uh, a dark time for a lot of real estate properties, mostly malls and power centers and poorly located uh, properties. You know, um, during the good times, people could build anything anywhere and it pretty much would lease up and perform. Um, but Amazon, as you mentioned, did have an impact on all, re all retail, not just the malls where they devastated them, um, but even in the uh, neighborhood properties where the tenants, um, the prices got squeezed because Amazon lowered prices on everything and they weren't strong enough to survive. But we've been through that process and what I see is an uh, ar arbitrage situation where we have for a period of time here, I'm not sure how long, where because of the retail apocalypse um, conversation, um, a lot of people just write off real estate, I mean, re retail real estate and, um, and look at it as, you know, bad news. So they're staying away. So the, the, um, the volume of transactions and the competition for uh, properties has declined, which creates an opportunity for me to pick up properties at better uh, cost per foot and yield than I would have uh, a few years ago. And I think that's gonna continue at least for a few more years um, as we work through what, the next phase of the uh, economic recovery. So right. my contrarian view is that you stay away from what we call big boxes, um, which malls are big boxes, um, but also even power centers that um, are reliant on, you know, large, large uh, companies renting 50,000 foot spaces or whatever that when they leave or go broke or whatever, um, you're stuck with a space that's really hard to reuse. You know, people are putting churches mm -hmm. in them and, you know, fitness centers can fit and trampolines and there, there are some uses, um, uh, but it's uh, really difficult to get all your space leased if you have, if you have too much of that. So I stay away from right. those properties and I focus more on grocery anchored centers, which the grocers, um, you know, create a lot of traffic for the other tenants and they're, sure. they're quite resilient, except that I'm careful about really looking at the strength of the grocery store in that particular market. I want to be, you know, I want to know that they're at least in the top three um, because there is going to be a shakeout. There has been a little bit of one. There, there is going to be a shakeout in groceries um, primarily because so many new grocery lines were started in the last 10 years, but also obviously Amazon's entered that arena no one's quite sure what they're going to do but you can be sure and it already has happened at whole foods prices are lower um so they definitely will uh, push push the uh pricing to get market share i mean that's something they're very good at so then i also um really like um neighborhood centers um where they're pretty straightforward they have you know, a fitness, you know, uh, they have food, they have, 
um, entertainment, they have medical, a lot of um, different medical uses have found that retail is a great place to be versus an office building. Two reasons, one, they're closer to their customer and two, um, when they're in an office building, unless they're really good at marketing or they're attached to a hospital, no one knows they're there. So um, this way, every time someone drives by, they see, you know, Joe's dental sign on, on the space and they know, okay, there's a dentist. Um, so yeah. that works well. And, and lastly, our services that, or pro, it could be a product, but more likely it's a service so that it's something that you can't put in a box and ship. You know, it, it's, it's something you have to go there in, uh, to get or do. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's, that's, that's where we get what I call Amazon resistant uh, tenants. And, and sure. that I think is not going to go away. You're going to, you're still going to need to go to the a hair salon or a nails or whatever um, because, you know, Amazon, I don't think we'll figure out how to do that in a box. So, right. so that's, that's our niche. And traditionally retail has traded at higher, higher yields than the other um, product types like office and industrial and multifamily. But even now there's even a greater spread. Um, and so um, it's, you know, even more attractive. Sure. What's the minimum cap rate that you consider when going into a property? And what are you typically seeing? What is a, what's a high cap rate in your space, you know, in sure. the West, if that's where you're investing? Okay. So um, on average, nationally, um, a class A and B spaces, which are the only ones you'd want to consider because C means it's probably really old and really functionally obsolete and someone should knock it down or use it for something else. So if you look at those cap rates, um, on average nationally, it's, it's um, between seven and seven and a half percent, depending on who you're talking to. My numbers are based on CBRE and Reese uh, numbers. Um, on a high quality uh, new construction, class A, you know, credit tenants, you can go down to a six cap. Um, I don't like to buy at that level. I like to have, you know, maybe there's some vacancy or some reason that I can buy it at a, at a six or a six and a half, but I lease up the vacant space and now I have a seven or better. I, I try not try to have seven is my bottom line. Like the, the property that I'm currently working on, it's 137,000 feet. It's sort of a lifestyle center in the sense that it has a theater. It has office space on the second floor and then all your, you know, good Amazon resistant uses from restaurants, uh, services, Starbucks, things like that. Um, and I'm buying that at an eight cap, which I'm thrilled at. Um, and right. I was able to do it in part because it's, it's not a straightforward deal because it has mixed uses. Um, institutions mm -hmm. are afraid of theaters right now. And I think in this particular situation, it's well positioned, it's not too big, and um, it, it provides um, traffic to the center, um, and they're at a low enough rent, I'm not worried that they're not gonna be able to perform and stay healthy. So I've seen deals at 9%, um, occasionally at 10, but usually there's a problem with them if it's that high. Um, so between seven and nine is sort of the range that I see good deals at that, uh, that you know, will perform and, and obviously provide a very good yield once you put 
some debt on it, um, you're you're in the low double digits, uh, you know, actually cash on cash returns, which is phenomenal. Um, you know, when you compare that to where bonds and interest rates are today. Right. Some people might hear nine percent cap rate and say, "Wow, it sounds unreal. It sounds so good." Um, they might say, "Oh, well, it's probably." A very very small size deal. I mean, what what are the smallest size deals you look at, and what are the typical size in terms of a check size or a or a price of the property? Well, I do find um, really nice properties under five million um, that are attractive and you know have the credit tenants and you know usually the class A um, smaller properties um, that have uh, you know a really good uh, lineup of tenants. Um, I liked more to be in the 10 million to 15 million or 20 um, because you, the, the field of buyers is smaller um, for two reasons. One, it's too big for um, a large part of the pool. They just don't have enough money to buy a property that big. And um, from an institutional standpoint, those are still considered relatively small deals. So a lot of them, you know, have minimums that put them out of the game. So it's a smaller field overall, ultimately, of buyers. They're more entrepreneurial like me. Let's have access to, you know, capital sources that can write checks, uh, you know, 8 million or 10 million or 12 million, whatever. Um, so that's, that's where I play. Sure, sure, it makes sense. And how do you structure your deals? Are you, are you raising funds? Are you doing uh, as an independent sponsor, a deal by deal? Are you offering both options? What have you decided on and how did you get to right. that thinking? Right. I, uh, I, first of all, I'm flexible. It, it depends on the deal and depends on what the equity markets are like at that particular time. My overall preference is to do the more classic joint venture uh, approach where you have one or maybe two uh, equity sources. And then obviously I'm in a sponsor and um, we have, you know, people that have the same views as I do as far as their approach, though, how long they want to hold it um, and, uh, and things like that. Um, so the um, you have less partners then, you know, the, the traditional limited partnership with, you know, 20 people each putting in, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars is another way to go. And some properties that is the way to go because the, the guys with uh, more money aren't interested in that deal because it's small or, you know, some other reason. Um, so I do both ways. Uh, but I always put in five to 10% um, to put my money beside the investor and then obviously manage it. And, and work the business plan to uh, achieve the uh, end result we're looking for. Sure, sure. And a lot of uh, sponsors have, you know, six to eight percent preferred returns, and then they're, you know, taking either twenty all the way up to fifty percent profit. Sometimes there's a couple hurdles. What have you guys decided on for that approach, and how's the investor reception been to that? Yeah, what I'm finding is people want it to be more simple. Um, I think you see the multiple waterfalls on the more retailish kind of deals, you know, where you have the smaller, less sophisticated um, investors um, and you might have, you know, two or three levels. But on the deals that I'm seeing where you have one or two partners and they're writing, you know, big checks, um, they want a simpler structure. So uh, let's say um, in, 
more, I'll say in the old days, old days for me, uh, you might start at a, at a 80-20 split up to a, you know, a 15% IRR, and then you go to a 70-30 uh, up to you know, 20 or 25 or, or, or through the rest of the, uh, the, the, the cash. Um, where today, um, you know, what happens is that we pick an overall split that basically um, is all the um, profit above an, uh, a seven, eight, or nine percent um, average annual return. Um, you know, the, what we call the preferred return. Um, but anything over that gets split 80, 20, 75, 25, something like that. Sure, sure, makes sense. Great. And then, um... From all your experience in commercial real estate and real estate investing in general, for investors listening to this or commercial real estate investment firms, what's been one of the most expensive mistakes you've seen an investor make, or you've been on a team and the mistake was made, or you almost made the mistake and it you know, was something you could share with the audience here to kind of have them learn from it? Well, the, the biggest mistake is a misfit. Um, between the uh, sponsor and the investor where they don't have shared values and uh, the sponsor wants to go in one direction and the uh, investor doesn't. Um, and typical deals um, today will have a list of major decisions that the investor has a say in, you know, virtually veto power, like a sale or refinancing or uh, things like that. Um, and that's evolved because you know people investors have gotten in situations where they discover that they don't see eye to eye with the sponsor. Uh, the next biggest mistake is um, is the the investment you don't make or the investor you make. You know that that are actually there's there's fundamental reasons why you shouldn't have been there in the first place. Um, I've been fortunate that I haven't had that problem, but um, right. you know it's inevitable. So, right. uh, you know, you just have to be alert for, so, and the, <laughs> and the biggest mistake I've made in my career was not buying properties in 2009 <laughs> while I was doing all the distress workouts. Uh, I should have been buying at the same time, but, um, but that's all, that's all uh, water under the bridge. Sure. Sure. What about the most powerful insight? It could be on due diligence. For private investors listening to this who are doing their own deals, it could be for evaluating the credibility and the professionalism of a sponsor. And maybe a family office or investor listening to this could really benefit from it. Or just some other piece of advice you want to get across on the podcast that you think would be the most helpful thing to kind of end with here. Well, to your question, um, and again, it sort of feeds my theme about the sponsor and the investor really taking the time to get to know each other and understand the, um, each, each party's objectives um, is, you know, due diligence is really important, not just on the real estate, but on each other. So you, you understand them better. And, you know, most you know, savvy investors now do do due diligence uh, on the sponsor. They don't just take your word for it. They really do, you know, lift the, lift the hood and look under it and see that it really is what you say it is. Um, so, you know, it's something that uh, everybody should be doing. Um, it, 
as an investor, you, you need to do enough homework to understand what you're investing in, no different than buying stocks and at least understanding what Amazon's business model is and what the trends are. Um, it's the same thing for real estate. Right, right, yeah, makes sense. So I guess I have one extra question I'm just curious about. In your space, are there a lot of investment firms fighting over the deal flow? You know, let's say if it's a two to $5 million deal or a two to $10 million deal in the Midwest, are you really in bidding wars or is it just one or two other people at the table and don't even know if they're real? So um, it's a bifurcated world. Um, the better the property and the larger the size, the more likely that the seller has hired one of the more sophisticated brokerage firms and their model is that they put it on the market um, they give uh, potential uh, buyers enough time to do a, a high level of due diligence, um, 30,000 feet kind of stuff, and, uh, and, and come up with a value. And then they do what they do call a call for offers, and everybody submits their, um, their bids at this deadline. And then they play off, you know, the top, they pick a top three, let's say, or five, and then they come back and say, you know, give us your best number, you know, they keep working you over. Uh, and it's sort of more like a sealed bid approach because you, uh, as a buyer, don't have that conversation going with the seller to really understand uh, where their head is at as far as the value they're seeking. Um, and, and again, the number of bidders, I haven't seen any deals that I'm aware of that they, there were more than a dozen, um, in this deal that I have tied up right now, there were probably five, you know, um, and we were in the top four than the top three. And then we made it to the number one, um, through the steps that they put us through. Um, so, um, you know, so that's the range. I mean, it's really rare that you're going to get more than a dozen um, bidders at the end of the day. Sure. Okay. And I guess one thing I just want to emphasize before we end here, and I'll give you a chance to add anything else you want to add. It's just that at our events, at the Family Office Club events, there are a lot of multifamily apartment building sponsors, which is fine because there's big demand for it. There's big appetite. But to survive in such a crowded space, you need to have a really niche or specific sharpened strategy or something that's unique or counter trend within the multifamily space um, to really survive, in my opinion. You know, you see office park and self storage next. Uh, every once in a while, see an RV park, a mobile home park, or maybe retail. Um, and only twice I've seen industrial real estate sponsors at our events over 12 years. So it's really one of the less, you know, popular areas that you're in right now. And I think you're going to do well just because it's not overly crowded, but it has to lead to some educational challenges. I'm guessing you have to maybe, you know, bring investors to some properties, you know, show them the types of returns and uh, spend more time educating than somebody in self storage or multifamily might need to, right? Exactly. Um, you know, and part of my approach to that is um, getting published, doing podcasts, speaking at events. Um, appreciate the, the 
the opportunity I had in Dallas to speak to your, your group there um, and, and share these materials. They're on my website, but I share them with prospective investors who may be very experienced with one of the other property types, um, mm-hmm. but are curious about retail because they see that they can get a higher yield. And then after you know talking to me, they either buy my, my pitch or not. Um, as to what's really going on in retail and why you can you can make money without taking extreme amounts of risk. So um, it's yeah, it's if I were doing multifamily or warehouse, there's there's nothing to tell that people already know everything <laughs> about it. It's been so popular for so long um, that mm-hmm. the real challenge is everything is you know I think overpriced, but highly priced and very low yields for the investors. So, you know, it's, uh, it's popular, but I think they're shorting themselves and not getting the higher yield that real estate can deliver without taking, you know, a lot of extra risk. So. Sure. Okay. Uh, any last comments you want to make or points you wanted to get across that we didn't have a chance to talk about yet? Well, um, I wanted to talk a minute about what's happening today. So, you know, as evidence that retail is an apocalypse is the retail sales in the United States continue to increase despite all of the talk and the noise and the the tragedy that happens at some properties. Uh, This year, it's it's projected to be between three and a half and four and a half percent, um, which uh, on an economy this big, and uh, it's, it's really impressive. Um, so each quarter, each month, the, the sales numbers come out and they're still positive and still growing at a nice, nice rate. Um, so, I, you know, as a further assurance that, you know, that retail is, is a good sector, I wanted to point to that. Secondly, I wanted, you know, to talk about a vision of what I see happening uh, in retail, and I don't know how quick, quickly this will come, but sure. Jeff Bezos, who is, you know, an incredible competitive, uh, you know, uh, player in the e-commerce arena, is focused um, intensely on um, same-day or one-day delivery. Like in urban areas like Chicago, you can, a lot of the stuff that um, isn't too bulky and is, is in high demand, I can get the same day that I order it. It might be nine o'clock at night when I get it, but it will be the same day. And at no extra cost uh, for that, because as a prime member, you don't pay for that. Um, what he's done in the last couple of years is figure out how to build a, a delivery system of his own. You, you may be aware that he cut ties with FedEx. Um, I think it was earlier this year or late last year, and everybody was like, scratching their heads. Well, that's because he's he has his own planes. He has his own, you know, delivery system that he's building and expanding. But um, his goal is his stated goal is is to have all deliveries in, within one day. And you go, why spend all that money and work that hard to deliver it in one day when people are happy with two day delivery or or whatever at this point? Sure. And most other than Amazon. Most places you order stuff, it can take a week or whatever. Um, and I think, this is my theory. My theory is that if he can cons- consistently deliver in one day, 
think about the convenience of ordering it versus going to the store. You're, you, you're going to go to the store when you need it immediately, right? Um, but right. If, if you needed a, your, you know, new type, you know, <laughs> stapler or whatever, you can wait till tomorrow, right? So, and you look at who are the top two um, retailers and it's Walmart and Amazon. And Walmart right now, uh, last year they, they gross 500 billion and Amazon gross 250 billion. Mm-hmm. And Walmart's been a pretty robust, both e-commerce and, and bricks and mortar retailer. Um, and they you know, have been at it a long time. But they're also very, you know, Walmart is a price sensitive um, uh, retailer, just like Amazon. And I think his plan is to make it so convenient and have it s- as such a, t- a tight system that other retailers won't be able to compete with them without building their own. And he will have done it while they've been all looking the other way. Um, and he'll right. just, just kill them. I mean, it's, you know, the, the, that whole relationship could flip, uh, you know, in short order once he can prove that model. So I haven't talked to him. He hasn't told me that it's his plan, but that's when you extrapolate what's happening. That's, that's what I, I think is going to uh, be the uh, next big uh, event in uh, e-commerce and retailing. Right. Yeah. Interesting. I've seen that Amazon has some stores they're opening um, within malls. I've seen I've seen them before myself and that's interesting that they're going into retail themselves where they see maximum foot traffic perhaps. So I don't know if you've seen that trend. Yes, um, that's yeah, it's something I failed to mention. So this is really interesting. So you take an online retailer like Warby Parker, you know, eyeglasses, or or you Mm -hmm. know other outfits that started totally as e-commerce outfits. They've started. They're one of the hottest new growth areas for owners of of retail real estate um, to to land them as as tenants. They pay good rent. They obviously have good credit. Um, They already have a a successful business plan. And by opening that store, the physical store where people could come in and touch and feel, and I I wear Warby Parker glasses because because they're really cost effective. And I was able to go to a store here in Chicago. They have several now and try them on and look at them in the mirror versus on an app on your iPhone. Um, and, and, and it works well, companies that have gone, have transitioned to be both e-commerce and bricks and mortar, their sales go up on average, like 35%. It's been a home run for the Mm -hmm. the people who've done it. Amazon sees the same thing. I have an Amazon to go store, um, across the street from my office and this, uh, I don't know if, if you've seen this or not yet, but there's no staff. Um, there is a person there and they're, they're teaching people how to do it. But uh, you go in, you pick up the items and, it, it, and when you go back to the turnstile, it, it adds it up and charges your, your Apple Pay account. Um, and they, they have a vision of this is just food um, and, and you know, convenience kind of stuff. But they have a vision for doing bigger stores that do more stuff um, and that are, are cashierless. Um, so, uh, they're, they're definitely, um, going to be a player in bricks and mortar, um, which is a great thing for us. Um, you know, you can go and touch, you can touch it and you can get service, you know, return items, pick up items. 
Um, UPS just started um, our UPS store in our, in our neighborhood strip won't take packages anymore for drop off. They send you to uh, a little contraption next to uh, the 7-Eleven where you scan the box and it put, opens a little door into uh, like a mailbox and you put it in there and, and it goes on from there. And it's, it's easier for UPS to do that than making the trips to all the different drop off points. Very, right. very intriguing. Makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it's the ultimate uh, Amazon immune retail is uh, an Amazon store, I guess, huh? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, yeah interesting. that's full circle. Yeah, well, we operate our family office club business in a retail center in a wealthy community just because of the reason you talked about with the dentist. So when people go by, you know, they see where we are and they can walk on in and We've had a billionaire come in in their baby stroller. We've had private equity fund executives, CPAs mm -hmm. of family offices, you know, wealth advisors, and uh, definitely helps. So I see that as a really relevant trend that you mentioned earlier as well. So, so just to close it off, uh, where's the best place where somebody can learn more about USL and Caprock in general in terms of a website address or somewhere like? Yeah, so the web address is r relatively simple. It's Caprock with a, it's C-A-P-R-O-C-K. RE meaning real estate.com and it covers uh, everything we do. Um, it's, it's also somewhat educational and, um, and we have a chat feature and uh, you know, once we get connected, we can, you know, take, take the conversation from there. So Great. Um, that's, that's the best way. Excellent. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing you at the Family Office Super Summit and hopefully some of our events, you know, in 2020. If anyone's not signed up yet, um, please check out familyoffices.com forward slash super. It's going to be at the Ritz-Carlton here in Key Biscayne, just outside of Miami. And uh, thanks for your thoughts here, SL. I hope to have You're you on the podcast again sometime. Okay. Thank you. I'd love it. Take care. So, Richard? <laughs>